This is David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers. Episode 11, Citizen Game, Part 2. In Part 1, I explored the first trend leading to our Game Changer, the increasing commodification of games, both by publishers and gamers. Now in Part 2, I move on to the second trend, the increasing crossover between role-playing games and tabletop games with role-playing themes. The granddaddy of all role-playing games was, of course, Dungeons & Dragons, one of the game-changers of the pre-modern era. Its influence was twofold. First, it revived interest in fantasy, particularly the kind set in a middle-age-ish world. Secondly, and arguably more important, it codified a whole new way of playing one of the oldest games around. I mean, of course, let's pretend. First, let's talk about theme. In the 1930s, medieval, or sword and sorcery fantasy, had a prominent place in Western pop culture. You had the stories and books of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian, comic strips like Hal Foster's Prince Valiant, which launched in 1937, and films like 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood. But the rising popularity of the superhero genre during the Depression, followed by the surge of interest in modern war-themed books, comics, and film during World War II, made medieval adventures seem a little tame in comparison. Although T.H. White's Once and Future King and Alan J. Lerner's 1961 musical Camelot kept Arthurian romance alive in popular consciousness. After World War II, American culture's focus shifted mainly to westerns, crime detection and crime fighting, and suburban domesticity. Then, in the late 1960s, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which had been published in the 1950s, were rediscovered and popularized by the American hippie counterculture. But it was Dungeons & Dragons which catalyzed interest in swords and sorcery for a whole new generation of fans. It is telling, to me anyway, that the wave of successful adventure movies that began with cartoon adaptations of Tolkien's works and reached its peak with the first Star Wars trilogy and Indiana Jones movies, happened all in the wake of D&D's arrival. Then we have the other major repercussion of Dungeons & Dragons' appearance. Its idea that games could be open-ended and driven by narratives generated by the players. On one hand, this was obviously not a new idea at all. Children instinctively role-play, whether as mummies and daddies, cops and robbers, cowboys and indigenous peoples, and so on. But Dungeons & Dragons was the first game to take the basic premise of Let's Pretend, make them sophisticated enough to appeal to teenagers and adults, extend them from one-off impromptu sessions to ongoing coherent campaigns using what today we would call world-building. It also codified and standard the rules, so players could move across the country and join a completely new and different group without worrying about having to learn a whole new set of rules. It was essentially franchising the role-playing game experience, with each dungeon master operating his or her own independent but compatible franchise. 
and not coincidentally having to buy all supporting materials from TSR unless they wanted to go through the trouble of creating their own campaign materials. And although many DMs, of course, did create their own content, everyone still had to buy the basic texts from TSR, which made it very profitable indeed. The whole thing was revolutionary, and as we saw in episode 5, role-playing games, along with the first generation of home computers and consoles, had spelt the end of the first golden age of wargaming. Role-playing games then had their own first golden age from the mid-1970s to the early 1990s, which ended partially due to oversaturation and partially by the arrival of a new type of game which drew on fantasy tropes. That's Magic the Gathering. But role-playing games never went away. Even if it took the first season of Stranger Things in 2016 to remind the public at large that, yes, Dungeons & Dragons was still a thing. Yet, right from the beginning, TSR, the original publishers of D&D, knew that not everyone had the time or commitment necessary to participate in multi-week or multi-year role-playing campaigns, but still wanted that fantasy and or dungeon-delving experience. It was to that end that it acquired the rights to a game designed by Dave McGarry in 1971, which had been rejected by Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, Avalon Hill, and SPI. They released it in 1975 as Dungeon, to great success, and the latest Wizards of the Coast edition from 2014 is still selling steadily. Now, both Avalon Hill and SPI realized that they had missed the RPG boat and tried like mad to make up for it, issuing their own RPGs, which, despite having their own built-in fan base and brand recognition, never caught up to the original. Both also tried to adapt role-playing game tropes to a tabletop setting. Avalon Hill's Magic Realm was probably the most successful long-term, with its sandbox gameplay still drawing adherence despite being almost impossible to find. Meanwhile, in 1983, British publishers Games Workshop published both a tactical skirmish game set in a futuristic universe called Warhammer 40k, and a more traditional fantasy-themed board game called Talisman. Talisman's roll-and-move mechanic betrays its age and randomness, but its following cannot be denied. It's not only still in print with many expansions, but it's also been successfully ported to digital platforms. Games Workshop also partnered with Milton Bradley to release a more tactical-style dungeon delver called HeroQuest in 1989, and its souped-up components provided many happy memories for thousands of kids through the 90s. So, when it fell out of print, it became a coveted grail game, with copies changing hands only rarely for hundreds of dollars, even for worn-out copies. This explains the huge interest in the misbegotten 25th anniversary edition that went on Kickstarter, that I mentioned in part one. And in October 2020, Hasbro, who now actually owns the international rights to HeroQuest, announced and began taking pre-orders for a reprint costing $100 US, not including shipping, $150 if you want the full souped-up version. It's not a redesign. It's got no improved components, it's just a reprint. And they announced it on their own online store, Hasbro Pulse. And they've already raised $2.5 million as of the time of writing. 
As for the Dungeons & Dragons brand, we already know from Chapter 5 that its publisher TSR initially grew from a tiny startup of three people into a behemoth. Then it acquired rival SPI in the mid-1980s, and then in turn, it was swallowed up by Wizards of the Coast at the turn of the millennium. For the next decade, Wizards kept D&D going, pulling out a third edition in 2000 and a modified third edition called D&D 3.5 in 2003. Then, in 2008, they released a fourth edition, which was a major revamp that placed a lot more emphasis on tactical skirmishing and a grid. They also began rolling out a series of cooperative tabletop games, starting with The Wrath of a Shardalon in 2011, which were one-off scenarios set in the D&D universe that used 4th edition style rules. These were followed by competitive games using traditional modern Euro mechanics, the most successful of which was probably Lords of Waterdeep, a worker placement game with pickup and deliver mechanisms. Another, Vault of Dragons, was actually a reskin of a game based on the Sons of Anarchy TV series. Perhaps Wizard hoped there would be a crossover between the audiences for each type of game, or it simply hoped it could make a killing selling minis. But although the tabletop games fared relatively well, the RPG fanbase did not rush to embrace 4th edition, with many either staying with D&D 3.5 or abandoning ship completely for a new system published by Paizo called Pathfinder, about which more in a bit. The fifth edition of D&D, which came out in 2014, returned the system to its roots with more streamlined play and emphasis on skill checks and storytelling over pushing minis around. In 2017, Wizards released Dragonfire, an attempt to provide a D&D campaign experience using deck-building mechanics, where players could level up by adding new, more powerful cards to their starting decks each mission, which you might recall was Donald X. Vaccarino's original plan for his game Spirit Warriors that became Dominion. And in 2020, Wizards released The Adventure Begins, a cooperative game aimed at one might call RPG-curious players. Dragonfire is still alive, but it hasn't set either the RPG or the tabletop worlds ablaze. The fact that Wizards continues to release D&D-themed tabletop games leads me to the conclusion that it continues to believe that there is a big cohort of people looking for a Dungeons & Dragons-type experience, but who either can't or won't commit to full-on role-playing, for whatever reason. And they're not the only ones. Paizo, the publisher of major D&D rival Pathfinder, released the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game in 2013, followed by many expansions and sequels. It borrowed mechanics from all over the place, including deck building and Magic the Gathering. Each player started with a unique deck which was class-specific and which got more powerful as a campaign progressed by acquiring more powerful cards. Although deck composition was constricted by deck size, as with Magic, players could gradually unlock extra slots as well as certain class-specific cards by accumulating experience, which they kept track of on individual character sheets like players did in D&D. They could also help each other on other players' turns by playing special blessings cards, which allowed the active player to roll extra dice for combat and skills checks. But players also had to be careful not to be too generous, because each card in their deck also represented one life point. 
with damage being taken in discards, and running out of cards meant running out of life. Quite a few of these mechanisms would wind up in this episode's Game Changer, which I will get to, I promise. Now, aside from D&D and Pathfinder, there are, of course, many other popular modern RPGs, including Call of Cthulhu, Blades in the Dark, and Star Wars Edge of Empire, whose titles should tip you off that there are plenty of RPG players who prefer themes other than medieval fantasy. And, with the internet and crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter, there's been a blooming of indie RPGs which have placed more emphasis on storytelling than on dice rolling and skirmishing. These games often have mechanisms for players to keep each other in check, so a game master is not required, nor is a ton of preparation needed. In 1998's The Tales of Baron Munchausen, players complete in regaling each other with hyperbolic stories, whereas 2010's Fiasco draws its inspiration from the movies of the Coen brothers, enmeshing players in a web of interlocking relationships and conflicts while forcing them to lean into their characters' flaws. Each standalone fiasco scenario ends with a montage sequence where players take turns saying what their characters are doing after the game's climax. At least one RPG has even incorporated tabletop components other than dice and cards into its gameplay. 2006's Dread uses a stack of Jenga blocks, which provides the literal as well as metaphoric sense of increasing challenge and doom. So in summary... While many RPG publishers continue to stay close to the formula set by Dungeons & Dragons back in the 70s, others have edged closer to board game territory. At the same time, traditional tabletop publishers and designers were looking to infuse board games with RPG elements because they knew those themes were popular, and they were trying to grow their audience from their end of the market. They did this in two main ways. By adapting RPG themes using tabletop mechanics like deck building, dice drafting, or worker placement, and by introducing campaign or legacy play. Fantasy Flight Games is arguably the premier tabletop publisher for taking beloved IP and translating them into tabletop designs that provide these RPG-like or RPG-lite experiences. They've acquired the rights not only to Tolkien's works, but also H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos, as well as, more recently, Bethesda Entertainment's Fallout video game series, and over the past 20 years have turned out, some might say churned out, a huge number of games based on just these three IPs. Fantasy Flight's Lord of the Rings franchise started with Reiner Knizia's masterful cooperative version of Lord of the Rings in 2000 followed by the unique Middle-Earth quest in 2009, the living card game from 2011 onward, and most recently the app-assisted deck builder with minis Journeys in Middle-Earth. The Massachusetts town of Arkham has provided the backdrop for a similarly wide-ranging series of Lovecraft games, from the original Arkham Horror, now in its third edition, to the dice-driven Elder Signs, the minis-driven Mansions of Madness, and the Arkham Horror living card game, not to mention the global-spanning Eldritch Horror series. And then there's Fantasy Flight's in-house fantasy world of Terranoth, which has served as the basis for its landmark Descent series, as well as various spin-offs. As for Fallout, Fantasy Flight has released a tabletop game based on Fallout 3 with two expansions, as well as a light worker placement game based on the Fallout Shelter app. Surprisingly, to me at least, 
It's a British publisher, Modifius, who's acquired the rights to release a tactical skirmish game set in the Fallout universe, Wasteland Warfare. I guess someone was snoozing over at Fantasy Flight when these became available. Of course, Fantasy Flight has not been the only one to publish tabletop games with an RPG flavor. Cosmos, the venerable German publisher, has the excellent Legends of Andor series, which offers puzzle-like scenarios with many different elements and goals. WizKids has Mage Knight, an epic and intense adventure game. Designer Stephen Gibson's Grimslingers games are set in a kind of hybrid Westworld Fallout type of place. And then there are a ton of games like Clank or Super Dungeon Explorer, which distill things down to what video gamers would call roguelike games of delving and slaying. Another group of tabletop RPG hybrids belong to what I would call the choose-your-own-adventure category, which refers to the very successful line of books published in the 80s and 90s by Bantam Books. The pioneer in this realm was 1981's Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, originally published by Sleuth Games and recently reprinted by Z-Man. The original box contained 10 cases for players to solve. After reading the introduction from one booklet, players had free range to explore late Victorian London by use of a map, a directory, excerpts from the Times, and so on. Each location and contact was keyed to a numbered paragraph in a second book which might contain only flavor text or a crucial conversation or clue. While in theory, players were supposedly trying to score points by solving the case by visiting as few locations as possible, in practice, at least for me, it played out more leisurely, exploring all the nooks and crannies and talking to every possible person, just like your classic point-and-click adventure. And although Sherlock Holmes' consulting detective was a critical success, winning the Spiel des Jahres in 1985, it initially spawned no imitators, possibly because of the amount of work it takes to put these kind of mystery games together. More recently, you have the rise of escape rooms in a box, which follow a somewhat similar kind of idea. It wasn't until 2017, though, that two very different games were published that revived the paragraph-driven exploration system that the Choose Your Own Adventure books and Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective had pioneered. Legacy of Dragonhold was a cooperative storytelling game set in a sword and sorcery world that pushed the boundaries of fantasy tropes by normalizing same-sex relationships and exploring racism in a traditional fantasy setting. Its paragraph-driven system was also more sophisticated. For instance, the passage of time was now a factor, so visiting a location in the morning would send you to a different paragraph than visiting it later in the day, for example. And This War of Mine was a tabletop adaptation of a very successful video game set in a fictional modern country during a military siege, loosely based on the siege of Sarajevo in the 1990s. Paragraph-driven player choices were embedded in a more complex system which included crafting and combat, and players had to keep their characters not only alive, but fed and rested. Although any player could take action with any character, which is almost never done in role-playing games, I still feel the game's difficult moral choices, which had consequences, not to mention the emotional heaviness of the subject matter, places it in RPG territory. Then in 2018, Z-Man put out two officially licensed choose-your-own-adventure titles designed by Prospero Hall, 
there's that name again, which turn them into cooperative games with the paragraphs on numbered cards instead of pages of a book, and the circle was complete. But while there were plenty of games which provided RPG-like experiences by appropriating popular themes and serving them up as one-shot tabletop games, as the 2010s wore on, a different sort of design began to appear which didn't necessarily feel like an RPG, but which gave players a longer-term narrative experience. I'm talking about legacy and campaign games. The first such game was 2011's Risk Legacy, which came with all the usual components, but also cardboard sheets that looked like advent calendars with flaps that could be opened, mysterious sealed envelopes and boxes that rattled when you shook them, none of which were to be opened until the rules explicitly told you to do so. The rules themselves had mysterious blank spaces, which ended up being filled in as the 15-game campaign progressed. The first playthrough of the game was basically like a regular game of Risk, but each faction did start with a different ability to break a minor rule, such as being able to move your troops at any time during your turn as opposed to just the end. At the end of each game, players could be instructed to open flaps or boxes or envelopes which would add new components, or stickers to add to the rules or to the map or to their faction boards. Or they would be instructed to write on the board with permanent marker or add new cards to the game and rip up old ones, all of which felt deliciously transgressive. Risk Legacy took a moribund old design and gave it new life. But co-designer Rob Davio really hit the mark with his next Legacy style game, 2015's Pandemic Legacy Season 1. The original Pandemic, designed by Matt Leacock, had been a huge and much imitated hit in 2008, with players racing against the game to cure four diseases spreading across the world. It, and its many expansions and sequels, are centerpieces of the cooperative genre. Now, Davio took things a step further by designing a 12-episode season which told a coherent story, complete with plot twists, set against an ongoing doomsday scenario, which of course, I'm not going to reveal here. Suffice to say that although players ended up with a final score at the end of the campaign, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was much more about the journey than the destination. Risk Legacy was a modest success for Hasbro, but Season 1 was a smash hit for Z-Man Games, and currently sits at number 2 on Board Game Geek, which is pretty amazing considering that it is, after all, a once-through experience. Its sequel, fittingly titled Season 2, and set 71 years after the events of Season 1, has fared almost as well, also in the top 50 of Board Game Geek, and there is much anticipatory excitement about the upcoming prequel, Season 0. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 success convinced designers and publishers that legacy-style campaign-type games could succeed with the public, and in the years since, there have been many imitators and variations on the theme, from Charterstone to The Rise of Queensdale to Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated. Even old masters of tabletop design got into the act, with Reiner Knizia's My City being nominated for a Spiel des Jahres in 2020 and Friedman Frieza putting his own spin on things with his own fable system of games, which, unlike regular legacy games, was resettable. Of all the modern designers, though, I think it's Alexander Pfister who has done the most to create Euro-style games with campaign modes, but that will have to wait until episode 13. 
So, to sum up, the birth of role-playing games in the mid-1970s helped to create audiences for games where players could create their own characters and make their own destinies, often with sword and sorcery themes, and helped to create audiences for games which unfolded with repeated playings and told stories where choices had irreversible consequences. This episode's Game Changer was not the first to capitalize on both these trends, but its size and ambition put it in a class of its own. And in part three, I will finally get down to telling its story. But don't feel gloomy. I promise part three will be a haven for all your pent-up frustration and expectations. That was part two of episode 11 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table.